You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We talked about the history of the telephone on the latest podcast. One thing to note is that Alexander Graham Bell's way to gaining the uh, telephone technology was not easy and there was uh, problems including a, a scandal that reached all the way to the cabinet of President Grover Cleveland. August Hill Garland, uh, born in 1832, was President Grover Cleveland's attorney general. Now he was from Arkansas and he had been opposed to succession. During the 1860 election, he was an elector for the state of Arkansas, and he voted, uh, he used his electoral vote to select John Bell and Edward Everett, who were the Constitutional Union Party candidates, uh, an attempt to, for compromise between the Democrats and Republicans. Now, <clears throat> however, once uh, Lincoln was elected, there was an 1861 succession convention in Little Rock, Garland voices his opposition, but after Lincoln calls for 75,000 troops from Arkansas to help suppress the Confederate states, Garland now, the public opinion is too strong in the state, and he gives his support to secession. He's appointed to the Provisional Confederate Congress, elected to the Confederate House of Representatives, and he's pardoned for what he did uh, by President Andrew Johnson, July 1865. The U.S. Congress, despite this pardon, passes a law that um, strips all lawyers who work with the Confederate government of the ability to practice law in the United States. He becomes a petitioner in the case of Ex Parte Garland, which made the argument that it was unconstitutional and a violation of ex post facto rights. He's elected governor of Arkansas, serves in the U.S. Senate, and then becomes uh, Attorney General of the United States, Cleveland having received the electoral votes of Arkansas in the 1884 election. While he was a senator, Garland, like many other congressmen, became a shareholder and an attorney for the Panelectric Telephone Company. He was organized to form regional telephone companies using equipment developed by a man named J. Harris Rogers. Alexander Graham Bell, the Bell Telephone Company, brings suit against Panelectric, saying they're infringing the patent um, after discovering that the equipment was similar to Bell's. And Garland was ordered to bring a suit in the name of the United States to invalidate the Bell patent, breaking the monopoly of telephone technology. He doesn't, but while he's on vacation, the Solicitor General of the United States acting in charge of the department authorizes a suit. There is a cloud of suspicion over this because 
there really seems to be um, quite a bit of um, scandal. Um, the Pan Electric Company was paying off congressmen. And, um, he's never charged, and he doesn't have to resign. President Grover Cleveland defends Garland, but there remains a cloud of suspicion, and he's censured by Congress uh, in 1886 when he failed to provide documents about the firing of a United States attorney. During the episode on midterms, we read from a little bit from a journalist named Frank G. Carpenter, and he was a Cleveland leader correspondent in Washington, and he covered events there. Uh, Here's what they say about him. In 1882, at the age of 27, Frank G. Carpenter was sent to Washington as a correspondent, the Cleveland leader, a modest, engaging young man with a sandy mustache and an unmanageable head of red hair. Carp was described by fellow correspondents as a human dragnet. His success was immediate. Thousands of readers got their liveliest news of the nation's capital from Carp's Washington letters, witty, outspoken dispatches, entertaining and fresh today as they were well, this is when this book is written 80 years ago. <laughs> this book's from the 1960s. And it's actually uh, edited by, I believe, his granddaughter, Frances Carpenter. We have the occasion now to read more from some of Frank Carpenter's dispatches because it ties into uh, some points we were talking about with the telephone. Here's what Frank Carpenter says. The panelectric telephone scandal is the sensation of Washington. In this case, which is being tried before the Secretary of Interior, Lamar, the claimants declare that Alexander Graham Bell did not invent the telephone but stole his idea from others. He's even charged with being in collusion with patent office officials. Bell's legal defense has already amounted to a fortune. In his library, there are volumes upon volumes of printed testimony containing arguments for and against his right to the title of inventor of the telephone. In the Drawbaugh case, which was settled in Bell's favor not long ago, 550 witnesses were examined. Months and years were consumed in taking their testimony. Drawbar's own testimony filled three large printed volumes of 800 pages each, while that of Bell filled four. The trial itself lasted for weeks. This pan-electric telephone case involving the Secretary of the Interior, the Attorney General, Railroad Commissioner, and Assistant Commissioner of Patents, and numerous congressmen and senators, outranks all scandalous cases of corruption of our public men and all other attempts of unscrupulous lobbyists to influence. There are such blots on our pages of our history from the very beginning of our government. Members of every Congress, from Washington's administration to that of Cleveland, have been charged with corruption. Many persons have been investigated, and some have been found to be actually implicated in deeds which should have sent them to the penitentiary. The Yazoo fraudulent claims were perhaps the biggest swindle of early times. Carpenter's here is referring to, in the state of Georgia, there was a land scandal where the 
legislature was getting rich off selling the land of the state. These had to do with lands that the state of Georgia sold to favored speculators for almost nothing. The Ohio purchase was similar. In 1787, the government gave 5 million acres of land to the Ohio Company, made up of New England men who lobbied the bill through Congress. Some of the greatest men of today, including Alexander Hamilton, were involved in this speculation. When later Congress began its investigation, the parties involved were too highly placed to be touched. So the matter was dropped. It's even stated that the location of the nation's capital was lobbied through Congress by George Washington, among others. Although it's not charged that he paid actual money for votes. But it has been pointed out that his own property, Mount Vernon, and that of his wife, where Arlington now is, stood to benefit greatly from this choice of location. (laughs) Well, Frank G. Carpenter there back in the 1880s lobbying a little attack at the the first president and perhaps a little attack at his uh, home of, uh, temporary home of Washington, D.C., I think uh, gets some things wrong, or at least gets the point wrong. It's, It's obvious that George Washington chose the location. Many people were looking to him to do just that. But, um... That choice of location over, say, Philadelphia or New York had a lot to do with maneuverings in Congress and with the uh, passage of the Assumption Bill that Hamilton wanted because uh, Alexander Hamilton, friend to Washington as he was, would have much uh, rather had the capital in New York and the Pennsylvanians would have much rather had it in Philadelphia. So, I mean, certainly George Washington was very involved with the building there, but... uh, uh, nothing nothing scandalous. The Star Route trial, which has proved a failure, has again demonstrated that no jury of Washington's will ever condemn stealing from the government. Washington City deems the United States Treasury its legitimate prey and would laugh at the man who would not steal from it if he could. One might go on and on recording examples of corruption in the past, But he could not cite one equal to this pan-electric scheme, which, based on the selling of millions of dollars of valueless stock, tries to grab the rights to a successful invention and makes high officers of the government into the most accomplished of burglars. Everyone's curious about the men involved. We hear of nothing but the Rogers, father and son. The father, who has engineered the selling of the stock, has a checkered career. He's well-educated, was an Episcopal clergyman who became converted to Catholicism and wished to become a priest. The Catholic Church, being a good judge of character, would have none of him. After the war, his sympathy still being with the South he wrote a secessionist drama entitled, I think, Mrs. Surratt, which lauded the woman who was hanged on the charge of being involved in the plot to assassinate Lincoln. This drama old Mr. Rogers had on his hands when his son Harry, the inventor of this new telephone, became connected with the government as electrician of the capital. There he constructed his first telephone, which he patented under the name Secret Telephone and which later he sold to the Panelectric Company for about $60,000. While the Panelectric scheme was underway, his backers thought it would be wise that young Rogers should remain as electrician of the capital. 
Rogers told Attorney General Garland that salary was of no consideration, but that his being there would advertise the company and permit him to experiment at government expense. Garland, it is charged, counseled him to keep the place and turn the salary into the company. Nice advice, if it is true, coming from the Attorney General of the United States. The Honorable Casey Young, ex-member of Congress from Tennessee, has been grand manager of the scheme. He is confident that his pan-electric telephone is going to be a huge success, and he tries to convince the public that its inventor is being persecuted by Bell. Robert Vance, the assistant commissioner of patents, another figure in this pan-electric gallery, was the one who first introduced the bill in its favor into the last house. Attorney General Garland is not rich. I suppose that out in the wilds of Arkansas, where the code of public morals is not the most advanced, his actions in this business would be looked on as smart rather than unscrupulous. From his education, I can easily imagine that Garland might have gone on to this scheme without a full appreciation of the ethics of his actions. Take a western frontier town with a practice of laws chiefly bleeding eastern capitalists for the defense of their land claims. If a man succeeds, no one asks how he obtained his success. And when he gets into public office, he does things he would never have done with a different background. I am told that President Cleveland understands Garland and that he leaves little of importance for him to decide. Scandals such as the Pan-Electric have given the people of the United States an exaggerated idea of the extent of lobbying in Washington. Congressmen do not often sell their votes for actual money. And much of the lobbying here is legitimate and honorable. A man who seeks to influence legislation by convincing congressmen of the best way to vote, by arguments only, is also called a lobbyist. During the agitation about the wool tariff this year, many prominent men in that business were lobbying. Among them, little Dave Harpster of Northern Ohio. No one would ever think of accusing Farmer Dave of anything shady. And the large part of the Washington lobbyists are just as honorable as he. Of the hundreds of pension lobbyists, national bank lobbyists, tariff lobbyists, steamship lobbyists, mail contract lobbyists, nine-tenths are sound businessmen who would not think of trying to buy votes in Congress. There are a number of state claims lobbyists, and there are office-seeking lobbyists innumerable. The representative of Collis P. Huntington is paid by the millionaire $25,000 a year. A lot of money in that time. Huntington often comes from New York to help him. You may have read last winter how one of the senators refused to come out to the lobby to meet his great railroad king. The newspaper man who represents the Pennsylvania Railroad gets a cool $10,000 every year. At present, the laws against lobbying are strong enough to send anyone who breaks them to the penitentiary. For a congressman, they impose a like penance, and in addition, bar such a one from ever holding public office. So at the time Carpenter's writing this article, uh, we don't know the outcome of the case, but that outcome was decided by the Supreme Court. Here from the History of the Supreme Court by Gustavius Myers, Volume 1. The principal competitor of the Bell Telephone was the Panelectric Telephone Company. 
This company charged its opponents, the Bell Telephone Company, with having resorted to a campaign of bribery by means of money or gifts of stock in order to get its patent claims, laws, and franchises and decisions. On the other hand, the testimony before a congressional committee showed that to get the government officials to move in the courts for vacating the Bell patents, large blocks of stock were distributed by the Pan Electric Telephone Company to influential representatives and senators, some of whom became directors of the company. It's also charged that United States Attorney General Garland, who had the practical power of deciding whether or not suits to vacate the Bell patent should be brought, held $10 million of Panelectric stock, for which he had not paid a dollar. It's never been proven, it's not proven, but in fact a contract was produced before the Congressional Committee proving that on August 4th, 1875, the Panelectric Company and the National Improved Telephone Company of Louisiana had agreed in writing that they would begin suit against the American Bell Telephone Company provided they could obtain the assent of the Attorney General of the United States. There were five actions against the American Bell Telephone Company revolving around the point of whether Bell, or a man named Dalbert, was the inventor of the telephone. The decision came down favorable to the Bell patent. Seven justices, uh, Justice Gray had refrained from taking part because of interest, and there was one vacancy on the court. Seven justices, of whom Waite, Miller, Blatchford and Matthews concurred in a majority opinion favorable to Bell. Bradley, Field, and Harlan dissented from some of the conclusions reached by the majority. Here again from uh, Frank Carpenter. Sam Ward, king of the Washington lobbyists, died this week, age 71. It is five years since he has done any work here in Washington, but his name is still spoken. And old politicians will tell stories by the hour of his marvelous dinners and his princely manners. For 16 years, his house was the favorite resorts of statesmen, diplomats, and politicians. Ward spent money like water. No delicacy was too costly. No wine too rare for his guests. He did not deal with small projects. Instead, the measures he was connected with ran into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. A gentleman for whom Ward engineered a bill of large dimensions told me about it last night. Samuel Ward never asked a man about a measure in which he was interested at his dinner table. As a matter of fact, I do not think the proposal for service ever came from him in the first instance. But he treated his friends so well that they are always anxious to do something for him and usually asked how they could help. Ward was a curious-looking fellow, short and stout. He had a noble head twinkling eyes, and a snow-white imperial beard which gave him the appearance of a French count. Always dressed in the best of clothes and the whitest of linen, he habitually wore a rose in his buttonhole and diamond studs in his shirt. Wherever he went, he stood out above the crowd as a distinguished character. He was finely educated, could speak half a dozen languages, and he so delighted in the study of the classics that he carried a pocket edition of some Latin or Greek author so that he could read while he waited for members of Congress. Sam Ward's history reads like a romance. He was born in the city of New York while the War of 1812 was raging. His father was one of the richest bankers then in Wall Street. Sam's tutors included George Bancroft, the historian, 
and he went to Columbia College where he began on the side an investigation of the science of gastronomy. While he studied hard, he lived well, acquiring the reputation for giving the best dinners among the students. When he later was sent to Europe for more study, he delved into the mysteries of French cuisine. When he returned to America, Sam Ward married the daughter of William B. Astor, a partner in his father's bank. Ward always spent more money than he made, and the financial crash about 10 years later brought him to bankruptcy. It was at the time of the California gold fever, and there Sam Ward was in turn auctioneer and merchant, accumulating a large fortune. Fire wiped him out, though, and next we find him among the Western Indians playing the role of a chief. Ward returned to Wall Street. Here he made enough money to live well, and for the next 10 years, he led a roving life in Mexico and South America. In 1865, he came to Washington with $5,000 in his pocket, and from that time until Garfield's death, he was one of the best livers and most courted characters of the capital. In 1881, he went back to Wall Street, where his fortunate speculations enabled him to keep up an extravagant establishment. Two years ago, when a particularly successful coup had netted him half a million dollars, he departed for Europe. Sam Ward belonged to the higher class of lobbyists. His operations were on a grand scale, and he dealt only with prominent men. He really had influence, but he did not stoop to petty means to get his ends. Officers of the U.S. Navy are among the greatest smugglers in America, a leading Treasury official told me yesterday. Go into their homes here in Washington, you will find them filled with objects d'art. Fine pictures, bronzes, Turkish rugs, which have been picked up in foreign countries and smuggled past the Customs House. Their cellars are stocked with choice wines, which they have brought home in the same way, and the fine cigars they smoke cost half price when they come in, as they often do on our naval vessels from Cuba. It used to be, and not long ago either, that certain Navy officers made a business of selling cigars to their friends. A curious case of smuggling cigars happened not long ago. A merchant vessel was sent by the Navy to Havana to bring back some sailors who had been shipwrecked. While there... These men got a hold of a lot of cigars, which they brought in such quantity that they stacked them up in a great pile on the deck. Over this pile, almost as big as a cord of wood, they threw an old sail cloth. When the customs officers asked if they had any dutiable goods, they pointed to the pile and said with a laugh, Oh, we've got some cigars there. The custom officers thought that they were being guyed. They did not look under that canvas. Twenty years ago, the treasury officer went on, the SS Trenton landed a wagon load of boxes and trunks at Fortress Monroe near Norfolk. A customs officer who watched, unseen by Navy officers, suspected that these contained dutiable goods. He saw them loaded on a wagon, and he rushed off to the express office at Newport News. He got there first, however, and seized the boats in the trunks, which were addressed to Navy officers in Washington and New York. Fees for duty amounting to $500 had to be paid before they were allowed to go on their way. 
It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep, about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Mr. Clark, the chief of the Merchant Marine, in a report on the subject of transferring his branch of the service to the Navy Department in 1883, speaks also of smuggling by naval officers. He says that in five years, naval officers smuggled in over $700,000 worth of goods at their own appraisement, and that he personally knew of 50 who were engaged in such practice. And uh, one final note to uh, his story about the smuggling going on, the Merchant Marine and Navy at this time. The Treasury had developed a conscience fund because once in a while people would get a conscience. Here's what he said. The conscience fund of the Treasury now amounts to more than a quarter of a million dollars. Every week and nearly every day, Treasurer Huston receives one or more envelopes containing money from persons who do not sign their names. The amounts range from two cents to hundreds of dollars. And the majority of the anonymous senders state that the money rightfully belongs to the United States. Sometimes they sign the word conscience. Scores affix the word restitution in a disguised hand. And a few have no signature. Some are like the following, which was written on a half page of foolscap, enclosing a $100 bill, and bearing in the middle of the paper these words. From one who wishes to observe hereafter the commandment, thou shalt not steal. This was all. There was not even a dash in the way of signature. Another letter enclosing 1250 read this. One with a troubled conscience sends 1250 which he stole from the government. He is sorry for his fault, and he will send the rest later on. And another from Chicago contained $25, 
Mr. Treasurer, please accept this from one making his peace with God and appropriate it to the use of the government. It belongs to the U.S. Signed, Restitution. This conscience fund began in 1811, during which 250 was received at the Treasury. In 1867, 12,000 was received. In 1868, 29,000. And the amounts continued to be received at the rate of thousands each year. You know, I was looking up after I read this excellent little note from Frank Carpenter. Uh, You could tell, by the way, why he was so interesting to audiences at the time, right? Here's in 1905 what the Scrapbook, a magazine at the time, said. The Treasury Department receives daily about 10,000 letters. One morning in 1905, there was received in the mail at this department a package in manila paper folded to resemble an ordinary official envelope. It bore several two-cent stamps, but no more than was necessary to carry it and nothing whatever to indicate its contents. It was the sort of package which might be expected to contain the vouchers or some claimant or subordinate official. When the contents were shaken out, $12,000 in paper money lay on the desk of the astonished clerk. The letter accompanying this contribution to the conscience fund read as followed. Honorable Secretary of the Treasury, I am sending you herewith $12,000, which is to go to the use of the United States government. Years ago, I defrauded the government of money, but have returned it all, and now I am paying fourfold in accordance with the teachings of the scriptures. The way of the transgressor is hard, and no one but God knows how I have suffered the consequences, and I would seek to do a bountiful restoration. May God pardon while the United States is benefited. The letter was simply signed, a sinner. But McBride's, McBride's magazine picks up on something interesting. Just here, the, the question naturally asked here is what manner and by what means have these conscience-stricken contributors taken advantage of the government? Hey, there's the rub. Once in a while, while the anonymous correspondent will tell how he got ahead of the Uncle Sam, in the majority of cases, the cause of this contribution can only be surmised. He feels that he has done his duty when he has delivered up his unrighteous ducats. And indeed, the uh, U.S. Treasury still has that conscience fund for 200 years. Uh, There's a podcast called the Futility Closet Podcast that actually talks a bit about it. So, I think the truth is that it goes back even further than that. People were giving money, at least in small amounts, to the government prior to 1811. But the government was just turning those donations into general revenues without anyone keeping track of them. But in 1811, they were so heavy that a special fund was created. In any case, this has been going on for a long time, more than 200 years. Uh, and the the fund is there, and new donations even today come in every week from guilt-stricken citizens. According to what I've been reading, they tend to drop off a bit in hard times and to increase around holidays, Christmas and Easter in particular, and around tax time. Any money that's donated to the Conscience Fund is deposited into the Treasury's general account as miscellaneous receipts and then is just used for general expenses for any purpose that the government deems proper. Because they feel guilty about their transgressions, people tend to be cautious about making donations. They send cash, and they often hide their identities by using an intermediary, such as clergymen, attorneys, relatives, friends. People have even used jailers to avoid being tracked down. But generally, as one spokesman said, the Treasury is not in the business of prosecution. 
Generally, the government doesn't ask questions as far as they know the donor is innocent, and in most cases, they don't even know of the indebtedness. And it occurs to me that if they prosecuted even one person, that would scare away everyone else, which kind of defeats the whole purpose. Yeah, exactly. And the spirit of the thing. I know of only two cases where the government tried to track down a contributor, and in both of those, they were trying to return the money rather than to punish the sender. In 1925, three checks totaling $6,100 were received by a collector of the Internal Revenue Department. The checks were from the John Doe Company and were drawn on three different Chicago banks. The accompanying letter said they were for tax and interest and that the sender, quote, trusted the money would be received in the spirit in which it was sent. The government couldn't trace any outstanding debts that matched that payment, so they began to think it was just he was just mistaken, the donor, that he, he didn't really owe this money. They tried to trace him. Uh, in order to return the money, but the bank said the man who drew the checks was not known to them. He'd identified himself as John Smith of Cleveland, Ohio, and the trail just ended there. They had no way to return the money. The other case where I know they tried to track someone down, and here they succeeded, is that during World War I, a young woman worked as a clerk at a local draft board. Her job was to send notices to men who'd been selected for service, who had been drafted. She used to write encouraging messages on the notices, and she realized only afterward that this was official mail sent free of postage, and hence she shouldn't it shouldn't be used for private correspondence. So she sent the Treasury a check for $340 to make amends for this. She signed her name, which identified her, so the Treasury was able to track her down and return the check, saying you don't have to pay us for that. <laughs> um, I hope you've enjoyed this little talk about the telephone lawsuit and the shenanigans there, an attorney general possibly on the make. And lobbying in Washington, good lobbying and bad lobbying, people defrauding the government, but also maybe regretting it a little bit later. Isn't it nice to know that there's some at least conscientious Americans in the past? Thanks for subscribing to the Premium Podcast. I guarantee you we're going to be hearing more from uh, Mr. Frank G. Carpenter. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.